Hello everyone, Joshua Gilliland here with my good friend Jack Yang, who is a privacy attorney here in California. Jack, how are you? Doing just great. Thanks for having me, Josh. And where are we today? We are here at Elusive Comics celebrating their 10th anniversary. And it is quite the party outside. Now we are in the podcast booth that Anna's husband put together and it's a great little uh, probably an old office room that we have the sound paneling up and they have people in here and they record podcasts. No, that's right. And it's a great day to be celebrating Elusive's 10th anniversary because it's also the weekend of the opening of the Wonder Woman film and everybody's really excited about that. And Elusive is celebrating its 10th anniversary and Wonder Woman Day at the same time. Which is appropriate for Anna because she does qualify as Wonder Woman. Absolutely, absolutely. She's like wonders of the store since she bought it 10 years ago. Have you seen Wonder Woman yet? I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I actually was working yesterday, so just didn't get a chance to break away. How about you, Josh? I snuck out Thursday night and saw it at 7. You did not. <laughs> I did because I was tired from work and I needed some downtime, but I was not going to go to a later show on a school night. Yes. So, but I, I saw it at 7 o'clock on Thursday, and it is not just one of the best superhero movies that I've ever seen, mm -hmm. it's an excellent movie. Oh, that's awesome. I just won't go into it any more than that. Jessica and I are going to record a podcast tomorrow about it, mm -hmm. but they did such a good job. It's hopeful, it's inspiring, it's got amazing action, the cinematography's great, it's just a fantastic movie, so to be here at Elusive to help celebrate it is just groovy. It's, I mean, it's kind of funny. I was reading an article this morning talking about the success or lack of success of DC, the film genre, and they were comparing the major team-up films versus the individual films and Marvel's approach versus DC's approach. And I was reading this article thinking to myself, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Just focus on making a good movie. Like the, the fact that you have multiple characters creates different dynamics and different. Um, and if you're going to create that type of film, you have to deal with the dynamics of having multiple characters and how to deal with the various stories. But that's just like any movie. At the end of the day, just focus on making good movies. Which they did. Oh, wonderful. The, the colors, when they're on the island, I mean, they, the island really comes to life. It does mm -hmm. look like a comic book depiction of. Theo Mascara, which I don't know if I've ever pronounced that correctly. <laughs> they do also refer to it as Paradise Island, which was in the comics in the old 70s TV show. Mm -hmm. But it looks like a comic book come to life on this amazing island. And then it does look like the horror of World War I. Mm -hmm. So they just they did a great job of creating that era mm -hmm. when they actually get to the war itself. And also London in 1918 mm -hmm. with how it looked. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a solid story. Awesome. Did you see it in 3D or not 3D? I saw it in 3D. Uh -huh. well, what do you think? Do you, do you think it needs to be seen in 3D? I don't think it needs to be seen in 3D. Okay. I don't remember anything really like jumping off the screen in such a way that whether it's like arrows flying by or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely want to see it in IMAX because uh -huh. it is it's a spectacle. I mean mm -hmm. like there's just a lot there and you want to see it big. The now they did have the previews mm -hmm. and Thor Ragnarok in 3D did look amazing. Uh-huh. So there's that. So mm -hmm. some things just I, I don't know. Some of them pop better. Mm -hmm. And 
and maybe it was just really subtle. I, I do want to see it again and probably pay more attention to does anything really jump out the mm -hmm. second time around. But it is wicked fun. Hey, did you um, actually speaking of Thor? Did you uh, did you actually catch the little Easter egg in, um, from um, Guardians of the Galaxy Two? There was this, this one scene when they're bopping back and forth in super hyperspace. Uh -huh. right? Yeah, going through like the hundred some jumps or whatever. That's right. And one of the jumps is the is the so they see the silhouette of a planet, and Thor and Hulk are running after each other, coming at each other like this. Oh, I did not you see, didn't that. see that. You didn't see that. You're gonna have to go see it again. Yeah, I definitely will. I want to see it a second time. Because I thought there was interesting timing issues with Guardians, and we'll get into Guardians a little bit more, but uh, so the beginning of Guardians shows it's 1980, yeah, and then it says 34 years later, so it would be 2014, mm -hmm. and with Baby Groot still as Baby Groot, meaning it's probably a couple months, maybe a year after the first Guardians, mm -hmm. and then we have the end credits scene where we have Teenage Groot. Yes, that's right. Which made me wonder, just with timing, does this movie take place uh, with Guardians 2, like a couple years uh, before Infinity War and some of the other Marvel stories that have happened, which I think is interesting, you know, uh, continuity, mm -hmm. but that way they can explain like a time jump to, you know, a couple years later. So the Guardians have, they basically catch up that there's three years or two years in between, but if Thor and Hulk are seen and in Guardians, that kind of blows that theory out apart. Well, let's find out. Like, you never know, like, what is the what is the maturation cycle of a, of a living tree at the end of the day? There's that. There's a lot of unknowns with Groot, and oh, yeah, there's a lot there from Guardians. But let's Let's jump back to the 10th anniversary. How long have you been an elusive customer? Well, actually, from the very beginning. In fact, actually, I've been coming to elusive comics and its predecessors through two previous owners for 27 years now, actually. In fact, actually, there are subscription boxes at the back um, in the store, and apparently I'm at the very back of one of the earliest boxes in the store. So the further back you are in the box, the longer you've been a customer. Um, so I'm in box nine. I think there are about 30 different boxes. They stopped numbering the boxes and putting little symbols on them instead. So I'm in box nine. So they're, and I'm all the way in the back. So Were you in law school then? I was in law school. I came out here for the Santa Clara. Okay. And basically um, started as a started as a um, started coming here. Actually, um, I, my first my first year of law school, I didn't even have a car. Um, so. During the summer, I actually was able to get a car, and I basically started be coming here. In fact, I don't even think Elusive was actually Elusive or the shop that was previous that came prior to this was actually packed away on a um, in a off of Calaveras. Okay, yeah, all the way in the back there. And then it moved to El Camino, and that's when Anna eventually took it over and they came over here. And back then. You know, the store was a classic comic book store. Uh -huh. You know, because when you think about that, back in the 80s and 90s, you were still focusing in on, like, comic book stores were focused on two people. They were focused on basically collectors, right? Because the only way you could get books and get back issues and become a completist was actually to go to physical stores and go through back issue bins and try to find books. In fact, that's how I got my 10 issues to Watchmen. My 12 issues of Watchmen, that's how I got my um, 
uh, I built out my Miro Command collection by going and just exploring different stores over time. But you know, with the advancement of stuff, with the advancement of the internet, with eBay and otherwise, you know, that entire business model just like practically disappeared overnight. Because now you didn't have to deal with regional scarcity in comic books. You could just go into eBay and find whatever you wanted, wherever it was in the world, pay for shipping, and basically have that book in your hands. And I think that's the, like, from a retailing perspective, what Anna has done with this store is that she's just basically, she's brought it into modern day. Because the modern day is not about the collector anymore. It is now about, um, it's about community. It's about serving the diversity of interests of science fiction lovers, comic book lovers, film lovers, um, kids, adults. Because remember, like back in the 80s, right? What, what were the most popular books in the 80s? The ones that are standouts are really at the end of the day, it's like The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. Uh -huh. Those are the groundbreaking books of the, of the mid 80s. And then at the end of the 80s, you had like Sandman, right? And uh the, those are the three books that kind of like really kind of created like what the future of comic books was going to be. I would also add A Death in the Family. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, that's true. Because that was such a seminal event mm -hmm. and the way that you had audience participation on voting yes. on whether or not Jason Todd lived or died mm -hmm. and with the voting being so close, mm -hmm. um, it does highlight every vote does count. That's true. So did you actually uh, did you actually call up the 800 number and vote? We did not. Mm -hmm. And so we... We did not, and I don't remember why, but we, that that's when we kind of broke into collecting DC. Because <laughs> uh -huh. uh, it's, it's odd when you look at, like, you know, my comic history. Uh, I lived in Sunnyvale mm -hmm. during the, that time period, and, and again, I started collecting mid-80s, mm -hmm. and there was John's Comic Connection. So that, Yeah, I remember John's. Mm -hmm. And so the first location, which was by the Sunnyvale Town Center, which is now where like Apple's litigation building is, there's a big target there where half the mall used to be, the mm -hmm. Macy's is still there, and then there was the uh, all the little business complex. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all gone as apartments and other business buildings now. Well, that's where store one was located. Mm -hmm. He then opened a second one, I think where Heroes is today is was was John's originally. I think that I think that's true. Or actually, wasn't there wasn't where Santana Road now stands? There used to be a Town and Country Center, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I think that I think I think one of the other stores was there too. The store was there too because I remember actually lining up and getting my copy of Arkham Asylum. Okay. Um, signed by Grant Morrison and Dave McKeon when they were basically virtually unknowns. Um, and uh, Grant Morrison was writing Animal Man at that time. Wasn't that the one that was like? The digital graphic novel. That was that one's the hand painted. Yeah. Um, um, Dave McKean's artwork. Basically, really good friends with um, Neil Gaiman. Uh -huh. uh, basically, he did. He was essentially the creator of most of the Sandman covers. Uh -huh. um, and it was so. It was a multimedia painted, uh, painted book. It was a graphic novel. It was an absorbent price at that time, about twenty to thirty dollars yeah. at that time, which was unheard of. And it was Grant Morrison's um, exploration, uh, indication of like his his obsession with the the psychological aspects of comic book characters. Uh, that and they gave Two Face like uh, like a six sided dice 
yes. instead of the coin and the issues that caused with him since like and at the end you know like this stands out you know 30 years later mm-hmm. of uh, Two-Face flips the coin in order to let Batman go or not go mm-hmm. and technically the coin toss was to not let him go mm-hmm. and he chose to let him go and it's him holding the coin saying with some pat final line of like like who's going to love you or something like that yes that's right that's oh. right decades later still stands out i mean powerful wonderful story well that's, that, and that's you talk about the the depth of of comic book writing and like what has actually changed over time the, what elusive actually represents mm-hmm. as a retailer in a store um you know, there used to be a time like Scott McCloud wrote a book called Understanding Comics, mm-hmm. right? And there was a there was a uh, a classic piece written about that. They said, well, well, comics are legitimate because Scott McCloud wrote this book that describes like the the literature aspects of comic books, where the, the gra- how the graphic flow and the narrative flow actually kind of uh, help build stories, right? And it's and but then. So essentially, people would say, "Well, you know, comics are legit because Scott McCloud wrote this great book, right?" And in reality, that was again one of the seminal moments where basically people started to understand this. And it, it is you have to think about the writing of Neil Gaiman, right, and Sandman in particular. Um, Sandman, uh, Sandman basically represented how should we say a genre bending book, the fantasy book. That basically opened, literally opened up, what was primarily a male-dominated hobby to women. Uh-huh. Right? There are many, many retailers who would acknowledge that basically they didn't have any women come into their store until Sandman actually started coming out. Until and then basically with that spawn Vertigo and Fables and Why the Last Man and a number of different stories, and all of that, all of that creative work. Has the, the influences of that creative work are have basically permeated all comic books. If you look at Image comic books today, where they started from their superhero origins with Spawn, with um, Supreme, and all of these other um, all these other very iconic kind of DC esque, Marvel esque influenced books, um, yeah, you look at what they do today with Saga, with Sex Criminals, with um, the with pretty deadly, um, these uh, these books are amazing, like sagas. They are they are they're epic in proportion, all done in graphic form, and you, you you can see you can see how this is actually so important because this narrative form, this combination of the narrative form with the graphic form combined with it, um, you can see the influence of it now because practically every movie that exists today. Has been influenced by them, right? Whether it goes all the way back to films like the whether it be films like The Matrix, or actually the modern MCU today, uh-huh. right? And what that has done, it's it's broadened. It's just broadened the audience for books, and that's why a retailer like Elusive and Anna's work is so important because what she what she's been able to do is that she's created a big, brightly lit store. It doesn't smell like old news printed in here, right? Agreed. I mean, on the floor right now, there are things that I would not have seen back in the day, in the late '80s, early '90s, of a lot of women. Yes, sure. In 1988, that would have been 
uh, much more limited. Yes, that's right, absolutely. And you know, there are comic book stores that I've gone into recently in other cities that still have that uh, you know basement hangout room vibe to it. The books aren't as organized as they could be. You know, it does look like newsprint all over the place type feel, and this is a welcoming place. It is absolutely. You know, I think of elusive as my cheers, but without alcohol. <laughs> That's right. You know, and, and Anna does that. I mean, Anna basically creates events that are focused towards different audiences. She has adult adult only events, like for example, on Valentine's Day, she'll do singles mixers, uh -huh. right? On um, and then Free Comic Book Day was was a free for all for uh -huh. for people of all ages, right? And then she's brought in a variety of artists and writers. Um, who write it? Who write at different levels? Uh, Kelly Sue, uh, when Kelly Sue yep. McConnick came in, it's kind of fun. I had a conversation with her about that. She said, "Well, do you bring Kelly Sue in and Matt Fraction in at the same time?" And the answer was, "Well, well, one Kelly Sue's schedule said that Kelly Sue was going, not Matt." But the other thing about it was that no, 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 the, the audience that they draw two different polar opposites. Like you have somebody who writes Captain Marvel. And basically, who is a who is attracting a young female audience versus Matt Fraction, who attracts a much more older adult audience at the end of the day, right? Yeah, and everything has its time and place. No, I think that's absolutely right. And basically, she she's created what what Anna has been able to do with this story is that she's she, you've already said it. She's created a beautiful, wonderful community. It's welcoming. It's a bright store that doesn't just cater to the comic books, but caters to Games and games and pop collectors and graphic novel readers, the the casual reader to the person who is still the obsessive collector who asks for bags and boards every time they come in, which admittedly is me. Um, yeah, me too. I mean, <laughs> I, comic book protective services would be all over anyone not getting bags and boards for their books. That's yes. Sacrilege. No, absolutely true. Absolutely true. So what are you reading today? So I'm reading a bunch. On the Marvel side, I really am enjoying Jason Aaron's Mighty Thor. Mm -hmm. His work on Unworthy Thor was equally amazing. Mm -hmm. I just love what he's doing with both books. And uh, both Iron Man books, Infamous and Invisible, are a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. What he's, uh, Bendis has done with Victor Von Doom is a fascinating character study of the man. Because mm -hmm. you had the quintessential bad guy, the high watermark for Marvel villains. Mm -hmm. After the events of Secret Wars, where he basically was a god, mm -hmm. and is now back to being a man, goes like, wow, I really screwed up and made some bad life decisions. <laughs> and I want to make some changes and start helping people. Mm -hmm. To uh, one of the other panel scenes was when when they had the uh, the, the uh, cabal with mm -hmm. the other villains, and after the events of the Doctor Strange Doctor Doom graphic novel, where they do save Doom's mom, mm -hmm. you know Doom's asked, "So like, what's your deal now? Like, your mom's been saved? Like, <laughs> she, you know, like, why are you still doing this? Your fundamental conflict has been resolved. Yeah, it's like." And and like the hood asks that question and gets banished sent like to the other half of the planet, but it's like it's a good question of like, dude, your mom's safe now. What's going on here? So everything that's happening between those two books is fascinating. It's mm -hmm. fun with Tony's AI mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, trying to advise Ironheart on all of her changes that she's going through, and and it shows Bendis's writing ability, mm-hmm. being able to write two very diverse characters mm-hmm. that are trying to honor Tony Stark's Iron Man mm-hmm. since he's been taken out of commission. Uh, Doctor Strange has been a lot of fun, really like what they're doing there, from the last days of magic to uh, you know, the, there's a Secret Empire tie-in that was the, the new author's intro to the series, and I'm blanking on his name right now. The Hulk book, which is following Jennifer L. Walters, mm-hmm. and her basically overcoming her PTSD from the events of, of uh, Civil War II. Flash and Batman have been amazing mm-hmm. on the DC side of the house. Uh, it was heartbreaking seeing Jay Garrick briefly come back, mm-hmm. but Barry couldn't remember him, mm-hmm. so he gets sucked back into the Speed Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce being able to see his dad, mm-hmm. who is the alternate Batman, and the exchange that they have mm-hmm. was good. And where will the Doomsday Clock go? Where will the Doomsday Clock go through? And, and that's that's really that question. It, it, it's interesting you, you raised that one because the Doomsday Clock and the assumed reintroduction of the Watchmen universe into the DC universe. You know, there's a lot of controversy over whether that's something that DC should do in the first instance. Remember the before Watchmen thing, which went okay, mm-hmm. right, but was not the spectacular success that anybody you know, that anybody wanted. They, I, I, a lot of DC certainly wanted it to be, and so it was not as successful as it could have been or should have been. But you, I, I've been thinking about that a little bit since they, um, since they announced it, and I'm thinking about what Alan Moore has said about Watchmen. Alan Moore has said you know, Watchmen was a was a standalone work. It should stay standalone. It shouldn't be expanded. It should be... That's it. Well, you know, the funny thing, though, I was thinking about that. I'm not really certain that's consistent, though. I mean, Alan Moore has spent his entire career taking, um, how should I say, iconic concepts and spinning them in different ways. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen takes seven to eight different public domain characters and spins them in a totally new and fresh way, right? So, and even in, um, this is going to be really, really obscure, because basically Alan Moore did write Supreme for a number of years for Image, right? The Rob Liefeld kind of Superman equivalent. And he basically took this big, angry character that uh, Rob Liefeld wrote and turned him into basically an iconic Superman with a multiverse and, you know, a mouse version of, of Supreme and there was a Supreme verse and there were versions of um, versions of, of Supreme and um, and his love interest in many different contexts characters are meant to be played with at the end of the day and I, I'm certain that Alan Moore is probably very upset about the fact well actually he probably doesn't care anymore but if he did care he'd probably be very upset that they were again going to play with the Watchmen characters this way but from my perspective, they're doing DC is doing what they should be doing. If you don't extend and play with the characters, they disappear. It's almost like it's almost like you know, the premise of American Gods in Neil Gaiman. I mean, the icons, the icons and gods of the past fade away, and their power fades away. Their iconic status fades away if they're not always in the light, and. 
you know, like it or not, like if Watchmen really does become part of the mainstay universe, it will keep that entire storyline, those characters alive for generations to come. And I think that's actually the biggest homage one can actually play to iconic like, iconic characters in the work that Alan Moore actually did. There's another issue at play with Watchmen, because those characters were based in the alternate 1985, where Nixon was a what, four-term president, and everything that went down in that time period has 32 years passed for them. Mm -hmm. So, while Dr. Manhattan is immortal and godlike, what's happened to everybody else? Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. does that Earth look like? So there's some interesting questions there. I, I'm okay with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I feel DC did a major course correction and it was a huge step for fan service where they kind of ditched the new 52 mm -hmm. and basically acknowledged like yeah we kind of screwed up with this one mm -hmm. you know we did things that made fans unhappy mm -hmm. and we're, we're trying to make things right you know, the Green Arrow comics have been great both action comics and Superman comics which I hadn't read before because it was, you know, it was Superman like I just I just didn't read it they're both excellent. Mm -hmm. yeah. Seeing the original or main universe uh, Superman married with a son who's what nine, ten, mm -hmm. is great. And so he's struggling with being a dad. Except he's not really struggling. He seems to be doing okay. Mm -hmm. And that's just a lot of fun. And mm -hmm. the Batman comic also has been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So. I've just, I'm very happy with what DC has been doing, and some of Marvel stuff is great, and some of it I don't care for. Fair enough. With that. I know, I know, I've actually been um, very intrigued with, with the Secret Empire. So I'm, uh, issue three just came out this week, so I'm looking forward to reading that and finding out how this plays out. Um, but you know, is, is Steve Rogers really evil? Is he really good? Is he both at the same time? Is he like Schrodinger's cat? Um, well, we're going to find out, and it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, they, uh, you know, their character assassination of Captain America, I think, has backfired in a pretty serious way. <laughs> you know, most most companies go like, "Hey, so it's the 75th anniversary of the character. Let's make him a neo-Nazi and see what happens." <laughs> and for to think about Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, their families probably aren't thrilled. Yeah, no, actually, that's true. That's true. Given given the roots, so given those roots, yeah, I, I just I find it appalling. <laughs> I was at Long Beach Comic Con and I went to a Marvel panel, and it was funny. I, I went to a Marvel panel and I went to the DC panel, mm -hmm. and DC had a much better panel. People were happy. It was a well organized panel, and the creative teams who were speaking were like, "Yeah," and like everyone in the audience was "Yeah" right back, <laughs> and it was just it was ultimate fan service and it was great. The Marvel one was disorganized, the moderator wasn't there, and in the expanser was a panelist. And when he talked about, you know, how much he's had you know, fun with making, uh, you know, Captain America a member of HYDRA mm -hmm. all these years, the entire audience, room full of people, was sitting there, arms crossed, just glaring at him. <laughs> so he could, like, like, lost the room. Uh -huh. And his attitude, he just kind of seemed smug. 
but I'm also trying to be forgiving. If you're in a room speaking and like there's just 200 people glaring at you, maybe, maybe you would be a little defensive too. So I'm trying to be forgiving about it, but I'm like, I'm not reading Secret Empire. Mm -hmm. I, I picked up the first couple issues of uh, Captain America Steve Rogers, which from Free Comic Book Day last year, I thought was going to be amazing. Because mm -hmm. I really liked the idea of Cap asking Congress to declare war on Hydra. That was very much like going after the Barbary Pirates with with uh, Jefferson. And there's Anna. And let's see if she comes in. Uh, let's see if she comes in. Join us. The, ladies and gentlemen, we're recording, and here's Anna, the owner of Elusive Comics. Hey, Anna. The horn's trumpet. <laughs> do, 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 do. Take a seat. It's my couch. I can climb on it. How are you doing? We were just talking. We were just hiking on the wall. The couch just sucked Anna into the floor. Anna's chin is now at the table. It's, it's like she's a two-year-old sitting at the table. It's like, hi, everybody. May I have some cake, please? We, we move a chair. No, this is way more entertaining. Okay, that's <laughs> If you're so, happy, we're happy. But. <laughs> we were just talking about books we were reading, uh -huh. um, and uh, and Josh was talking about his lack, his disdain for the um, for Marvel's direction of Captain America. Mm. Um, and I, I'm I'm actually I, I'm a little bit more open minded to it at the end of the day at this moment in time. But what are you reading? Are you reading anything outside of Marvel and DC? No, uh, sadly, not at the moment. Mm -hmm. Not at the moment. I'm I'm actually I tend to read a lot more outside of the, mm -hmm. the core Marvel DC audience. Um, to me, like Astro City, Kirk Busiek's work in Astro mm -hmm. City is amazing. Because the, the beauty of Astro City is that if you're not familiar with the book, it started with um, the premise of the the human the, the normal person's view of superheroes, uh -huh. right? And everybody was treated with a every superhero character was kind of treated in the classic Silver Age style. And the book has been going on for over 25 years. Oh my. Right, and it is, the, and the thing about it is that it's incredibly consistent. The tone, the artwork, same team, over 25 years writing this book. And it's phenomenal. It's like, the, and the, the beauty of the way that they do it, there are story arcs, but you know, Oftentimes, you can just pick up an individual issue, and it, it and every single one is actually standalone in and of itself, and it makes it a really good, easy read, the easy book to access and read, and it's beautifully drawn. And Brent Anderson, who actually lives in the Bay Area, uh -huh. he's practically at every con as well, and his, oh, wow. and his art, and he's incredibly friendly, and his artwork is awesome, right? Wow. I'm also reading. Um, I'm also reading uh, Eleanor and the Egret. Um, oh, by John Lehman. Yes, yeah, so John Lehman, uh, Aftershock. Actually, Anna had John here at the store after the to celebrate the end of Chew. Okay. And I, I was kind of funny. My son and I are are, are Lehman fans, and I said he asked me, "So how's Eleanor and the Egret?" I said, "I think it's going to be phenomenal, but it's going to go. But it's like it's two issues in, and it's going to take a little bit of time." He said, "Well, he always writes like that. <laughs> There's always a long buildup." Um, and then you know, for the more for the more mature, like like so, saga, mm -hmm. always about saga, east of west, pretty deadly, um, and um, sex criminals. Yeah. Cannot cannot talk about sex any sex criminals definitely. This week, a twenty five cent issue of Saga came out. It's a good new starting point for readers. Mm -hmm. In a quarter, it's you know what you find yeah. in your couch. Yeah, no kidding. And like yeah. and, and like it is such it is it is such a great book to read. And it's actually it it's, it's the, the individual issues, the, following it from the individual issues perspective is great. 
and then also actually reading it, sitting it down and reading it in one collected form is also awesome as well. So that's also something I would, I would certainly recommend. You can afford the trades or you can buy the hard covers, which is the two of them now. Mm-hmm. If you can buy those first two, you can pretty much catch up on practically all of it. And it's just, a, it's a phenomenal read. Now, there's a, there's a comic that I read very religiously while it was coming out in the 80s. And then started high school and didn't catch the end of it. Mm-hmm. And that's Akira. Oh! oh. And oh. so, mm-hmm. I need to go through my eight boxes of comics and look at how far I got to pick up the last few issues. Because that's something that's haunted me. Because it, the movie version, different story with how it ends. Yes, definitely. And that, I thought, just looking back at comic history with like non-Marvel... DC, I thought that was one of the most phenomenal, interesting, dynamic stories. Absolutely true. Actually, I have um, actually I have all the individual issues when Epic Comics this uh, did the colorized version, mm-hmm. um, and then I also have all the the original like the six mangaized versions of the, the black and white versions. Of actually, I think you have most of them in the store. Yeah, right, Anna? yeah, we oh. give them pretty steadily in stock. Yeah, because it's it's it it is. It is a very long dystopian story, and and it's a it, and it actually let's put it this way, the ending, the flow, the flow of the book follows. It's much more consistent mm. as opposed to the, the the movie is actually a very abrupt. Yeah, has a very a rather abrupt ending at the end of the day. Look, those are giant DNA strands and gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the you know they don't have the American carrier approaching. You know, there's there was just a lot there. Well, and you know, it's a, it, it was one of the most um, complex animated films made at that time. True. In fact, um, in fact, I just read an interview with Otomo um, Otomo um, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And he was explaining when he first started seeing the the rough cuts of the film. He said, this film's going to be horrible. <laughs> it's going to be tough to understand. Yeah, because it's tough to take something that epic mm-hmm. and make a film out of it. Yeah. And that's an issue that a lot of comic book movies can have in adapting the source material. Yeah. Well, my my view on comic book movies is follow the source material because there are lots of great stories there. Same with TV series. And if you follow it, just like make it good. Mm-hmm. You know, the Doctor Strange movie did a very nice job incorporating a lot of the oath mm-hmm. into it. Not not all of it, but just enough enough. Mm-hmm. You know that it worked. On the flip side, Iron Fist. They like completely missed the point of the character, and there was a lot of problems with that. It's interesting. My friends, which are customers and other retailers, are completely split. Half love Iron Fist, and the other half think it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, the current comic is great. I love it. I, and now granted, I didn't take martial arts, but the fact that they're like naming different uh, fighting styles and things that are happening within it. It's like, I know I need to Google that to see, are those actual, you know, (laughs) actual things? Because if it is, that's cool that they did their homework and they incorporated it in. On the flip side, if they're just making it up as they go, well, okay, power to you for being creative. Mm. But I've really enjoyed it. But I thought the TV series just missed. Uh, I am looking forward to The Defenders this summer. Mm -hmm. And I read last night that... Uh, the rumor mill says that the Punisher series will be out in November. Yes, the Punisher, the, 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 
season two of Daredevil on Netflix was amazing. Uh-huh. And you know, the Punisher aspect of it, if, if anything, I think if there's any gripe about season two, it's almost that they tried to cram too much into yeah. it in the one season. Like the Punisher story arc could have actually done the, gone the entire season, introducing Elektra. Uh-huh. In, in, was amazing. They're probably just worried they were going to get canceled, so they had to cram everything in. I suppose. I mean, I, I remember that's what the uh, that's what the the author of The Walking Dead said during oh, yeah. when he wrote Cut the thing. comic book, right? So, who knows? But um, and Sin City is now up for adoption um, yeah. into a TV show. Oh, is it really? I, I, yeah, I thought I saw that headline. I don't remember reading an article, but that sounds really yeah, it familiar. Was, uh, announced yesterday on IC- yeah yesterday on ICV two. Mm. Yeah, I think part of the reason they rushed with season two of Daredevil and having also giant loose ends is some of those will get tied up in Defenders. Because uh-huh. the 25 story hole in New York City that is conveniently then just walked away from, that's going to be in the Defenders. Mm-hmm. And so I'm okay with setting things up. But I thought John Benenthal's portrayal of the Punisher was the best depiction to date. Mm-hmm. And also the best showing sympathy for the character. Mm-hmm. The entire graveyard scene is what you would want to get him to say and testifying on the stand. Uh, you would want the jury crying with mm-hmm. him telling that story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also enjoy the, the issues of faith that they have. And mm-hmm. for you know, two Catholic uh, hero and anti-hero mm-hmm. you know, to be discussing you know, with Daredevil going like, maybe it's the, doing your thing and, and killing the bad guys is the right thing to do in this case. Mm-hmm. And the Punisher going like, dude, no. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be like me. You can't cross that line. So I'm like completely something that a lot of people could forget, but I think one of the deepest scenes of Daredevil two, season 2 was that exchange mm-hmm. between the two of them. No, it's absolutely true, and I think that 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 going back to the source material and going mm-hmm. back to Frank Miller's run of Daredevil, yes. where he ran through that entire that, that entire arc, well, was actually amazing and incredible at the end of the day. I'm gonna skip out, then I'm gonna okay. skip back in later. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks Anna. Anna. I shall return, ladies and gentlemen. Anna. <laughs> Ta-da! Yeah. All right. So, how's the so? You know, and you talk about like the, the, the we, I know you've talked about the legal issues of Daredevil in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what kinds of what what are the issues that you're seeing in, in comic books? That you the, what, can you give us a, a preview before we go into the last topic? Any, mm-hmm. any preview of the things you want to cover in the future? Uh golly, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. So. When Legion was on, I was super busy with work and a bunch of other things. Oh, yeah. And that, I look forward to talking about it. The yeah. mental health aspects of it, uh, involuntary holds of people, there's so much there that we can blog a lot about it, we can podcast a lot about it, and that's wickedly complex. No, Legion, Legion actually was an excellent show. It, it, to me, it kind of came out of nowhere, mm-hmm. but it, it was um, it was phenomenal. It was, it was fascinating. Beautifully done too. Mm-hmm. You know the costumes. Yes. And the, the way some people dress in it, it makes it look like it's the seventies. Mm-hmm. And but then you see them using technology that's today's technology. And while not everyone has a cell phone. There's what looks like touch screens and other things at play, so it's like you're not quite sure what decade it's happening in. Yes, that's right. 
And I was like, okay, that's brilliant. Yes. Uh, and if it is part of you know, like the X Men universe, like when would it be taking place? Would it be in the nineties? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's before the corn oil and you know no more mutants and everything else that we we see in Logan, mm-hmm. which was a beautiful, masterful film as well. Mm-hmm. Or is it at some other point in time? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if Professor X is the father, which Suggested, uh, yes. suggested, and would follow canon. Like, who was the mom? Yeah, was she the CIA agent? Because part of me would wish that would be true. Mm-hmm. And uh, but just to think how they shot that and what they did with it. Uh, lots of legal issues. Uh, lots of lots to talk about for people who are psychologists. Yes, absolutely. It, it's a good hybrid show. Looking forward to seeing uh, seeing what you guys what you come up with from a blog or a podcast perspective on that one. Yeah, there's there's it's going to be some work, uh, and I would like to revisit it. Uh, there are I uh, can't go into a ton of details yet, but we're going to have two panels at uh, San Diego Comic Con. That's amazing! Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, a lot of that's still locked down. We can't talk about it until the, the schedule goes final. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of homework to do between now and then. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be wicked cool. They, Sounds awesome. Congratulations. It's not exactly an easy task to get a panel in the Comic-Con period. So congratulations to getting that done. It represents a lot of work that the legal geeks have done over time to be able to build the cred. Thank you. It, it means a lot. When when we started the Legal Geeks, because our, our fifth anniversary is coming up in July, mm-hmm. and so it's like the week after our fifth anniversary, we'll be at Comic Con. I remember when we started, and we were interacting with folks on Twitter, and they were talking about going to San Diego Comic Con. I felt like we should be able to do that too. Mm-hmm. And looking at the content that was being done, it's like okay, it's creative, it's neat. I would like to join that party. Mm-hmm. And the first year we went. We did a Star Wars panel called Tatooine Law, mm-hmm. which was Jessica, Paul Graywall, uh, and and myself, mm-hmm. and you know, 300 people showed up. Mm-hmm. Not everyone could get in, mm-hmm. and the age range was like six to seventy, mm-hmm. and and there were kids who asked complex legal questions. Mm-hmm. One kid asked then Judge Graywall about. Detroit manufacturer liability mm-hmm. in the same context as manufacturer liability for guns mm-hmm. or tobacco. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's deep for a seven-year-old. <laughs> Rock on, little dude. <laughs> and Paul did an amazing job answering him. I was like, yeah, and we, we had Paul answer because we wanted the kid to go back and talk to his buddies that a federal judge answered his question. Uh-huh. Uh, last year we did two, mm-hmm. and, and you were there for, for that adventure. Yeah. yeah. We had Star Trek, and that had Justice Quaylar and and uh, Neil uh, Carrotree and mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of other great attorneys. And this, and we also did the Supergirl panel yeah. that had a lot of lawyers who were very talented, and that was just, it was just fun. Mm-hmm. And, and I did get a Neil before Zod t-shirt because it would have been wrong not to. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of work between now and July for trying to make this special. Mm-hmm. And then we got, we have um, three panels at San Francisco Comic Con. Mm-hmm. And that one's fun. 
because we don't have to travel. Yes. You don't have to get on an airplane. Uh, even though I do love traveling, but it's there's something about just being able to drive and it only takes an hour to get there. Yeah. You could go home or you could get the hotel and just be there. Mm-hmm. And it's fun going to these events as attorneys, and we can see all the lawyer, other lawyers who are there mm-hmm. and interact with them because we all have the same interests and the same loves. You know, it's it, it is it, it's interesting you raise that raise that point about the legal geeks generally. Um, it's being a lawyer is such a revered profession, and it is perceived in um, it perceived by the public in so many different ways. And you see what the portrayals of lawyers on television. You see them in the news. You see them in you know, basically in these sometimes larger than life contexts. You see them in Congress, right? But you know, what I think the legal geeks actually brings to the table is that it reminds everybody we're just like everybody else. Right? We have we have our interests, we have our passions, we have our obsessions, and sometimes we look at things a little bit differently because of our legal training. And it, actually, because of that, because of that different point of view, it can make it entertaining, kind of fun. I mean, who, who wants to picking apart whether Bucky Barnes should actually be liable for war crimes? Is he liable for his actions? But, you know, these are the, the. It's kind of funny. People always pick at the the plot points or the um, the plot points or the uh, the flaws or the holes in um, in movies and television and books. Um, you know, but it's another thing to go ahead and do that from a legal perspective. It's like, did they get it right? And the interesting and sometimes the most interesting films are the ones that actually did do the research and they do actually get it right. And it's it just makes it that much more fun. It makes it more engaging, makes films and television that much more engaging at so many different levels. So, proud to be a geek, proud to be a Star Wars guy, proud to be a Star Trek guy, and, you know, proud to be a comic book guy, you know? Sing it, brother. It's mm-hmm. it's fun. The number of judges that have Marvel stuff up in their chambers or Star Wars stuff up, uh, I, I was interacting with two and there were private Facebook messages going back and forth in a little um, messaging group. And the judges were showing pictures of their chambers, mm-hmm. which has Star Wars stuff in it. Uh-huh. And it was just like, they were comparing, like, well, here's my collection. <laughs> I was like, these are their chambers. It was just like, dude, awesome. <laughs> and And seeing them also be excited and being able to talk about complex legal issues in a way that lay people understand, because mm-hmm. people know the facts to Star Wars, or they know the facts to Captain America: Civil War, or or Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. and they're able to dig down and understand analysis and how the law would apply to that mm-hmm. is pretty cool. Well, making it, you know, making the law not only entertaining but also accessible, right? Which is the whole point. It's about because the law is designed to serve people, and if people don't understand the concepts and the underpinnings behind it, it is just this mystical black box. It's called right? the law. The law, right? You're living, you're abiding by it, but what does it actually really mean? And if you can't actually make it tangible for people, um, you know, that's it's like then they don't quite understand what the law is actually protecting them sometimes from, and what they're protecting them from, right? And 
I think the legal geeks and the, um, the panels that you're doing are, are, are providing a great service to the community and also it's just darn fun at the end of the day too. Yeah, it is pretty pretty fun and I do appreciate the kind words. It's uh, It means a lot. When you grow up being a geek, mm-hmm. you know, and, and again in the 80s and 90s that had a different connotation mm-hmm. of that you and your handful of buddies would stay up late on a Friday night watching Doctor Who. Yep. While the cool kids were off doing their things. Yeah. And and now that generation that grew up watching this stuff and were the outcasts are now the ones creating it and are kind of in charge. Or the ones creating it, or the ones consuming it, mm-hmm. or the ones that are out there working in technology companies helping create the future. You know, it's like embrace your inner geek. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is great. And it's just, it's fun. I, you know, one of the things I'm most proudest of in, over the last five years was doing the mock trial of the Winter Soldier at San Diego Comic Fest. Mm-hmm. We filled the room. You mm-hmm. know, it had capacity for like 130, 140 people, mm-hmm. and it was full. Mm-hmm. And there were people of all ages. Yeah. And seeing kids in the 10 to 14 range sitting intently listening to a psychologist who prepared an expert report on Bucky mm-hmm. intently paying close attention. It's like, we just made civics fun. Mm-hmm. And that was quite the high five moment mm-hmm. uh, for me, just because like, okay, they get it, they're into it. Uh, or Comic-Con last year you know, with, with, with our Star Trek panel having 400 people show up. That's right. Actually, the over the over capacity, they actually had to turn people away. There were probably about five to six hundred people in line in that um, for that panel, and basically they turned away a good two hundred of them. It's it's an it's a wonderful feeling that people care, that they're into it. That I think about a third of the audience in that one were attorneys. Yes. There was uh, Judge Carol Najera attended that panel, and she came up afterwards. She was wearing a Darth Vader sundress. <laughs> I was just, and introduced herself as a church. It was like rock on, <laughs> and and we presented together at a San Diego Comic Fest this past year. We did a Rogue One panel there, mm-hmm. and there is one neat judge, and in her chambers, Star Wars Marvel stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, she's quintessential geek girl, grown up. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, it's so neat to see and being able to to bring folks together like that. You know, that, that that might actually be that might be something you do next time you actually have judges on a panel or something like that. It might be great if they actually if you could actually as part of the panel show pictures of their chambers or something like that. That might be something you might want to consider too. Again, to show just how deeply they actually care for it at the end of the day. Something to consider. I, I definitely will consider if anything like that happens with a judicial panel at a show. Just that would be neat. If yeah, that yeah. If there's a judge, if there's a judge, if there's ever just a judge, just yeah. the show, basically that they really care that they're that they're wearing Star Wars shirts underneath their robes or something. <laughs> like that. Who knows? Yeah. Right. It's the possibilities are endless. There you go. It's because when I think of like Paul Graywall, I'm like, there's a there's somebody who just loves all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when we did we did an X Men mock trial this past year, mm-hmm. and it was whether or not Sentinels could be used to hunt mutants who refused to register with the federal government, and if they resisted, that lethal force could be used against them. Mm-hmm. 
Paul covered the air travel for one of the students from McGeorge to participate. Mm -hmm. That that young man, uh, order of the coif. Mm -hmm. I'm just neat guy. I hope he goes far. Paul had zero problem helping him go. Mm -hmm. There was a, another attorney, good friend. Oh, uh, we joke that he's the e-discovery meta daddy. Mm -hmm. uh, he covered another student uh, with air miles, so she could go and participate. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's the upcoming generation. Mm -hmm. You know, young folks who are uh, either in law school, finishing law school, studying for the bar, or they're young attorneys who love this. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel good about the future. Yeah, because they don't have to pack it up into a box. So they can be their authentic self at the end of the day. Exactly, and they're great decorations. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about uh, one of the big summer movies that we've just had, mm -hmm. and that's Guardians of the Galaxy. Because when I saw that, I thought of you. Oh, you're very kind. Because again, you're the privacy lawyer. You're like, this is this is your baby. And there was Mantis that when she touched Star Lord. You know, being the empath, she was able to broadcast to everyone who was there that Star-Lord had feelings for Gamora. Mm -hmm. And I thought like, oh, what kind of weird privacy issues are with that, you know, arise there? Well, it's, actually, it's a really good question. And you have to think about what the state of the law is in, in, in this area, and it's continuing to evolve. You know, so we'll just play with the, the fun hypothetical, you mm -hmm. know, because like, and, and remove it from reality at the end of the day. But you think about it. First of all, you think about the, the concept of what uh, what her abilities are. She basically can feel the emotional states of others, and she has to touch that person and make physical contact with that person. And she also has the ability to control emotional states too, right? Because she could she soothe the ego to sleep, for example, right? Now, of course, we're going to go ahead and and you know, just kind of bypass the, the common the common refrain about any of this stuff, which is always, well, Jack, you know, human laws do not apply to alien beings. So we'll just assume that, you know, that the law might actually apply to Mantis as an alien being. It's a hypothetical. It's how we understand <laughs> the law. Let's not get into a weird jurisdictional issue with egos of planet. Therefore, he can make his own law. It's like, let's just, let's focus on what we know. That's right. So, so basically, assuming that the law applies, like first, first one of the questions you have to think about is like, is is Gamora? Excuse me, is um, is Mantis's ability? Is she extracting personal information on people? Right, and by law, uh, by existing law, whether it be the Fair Information Practices principles or even um, that which has been implemented in a number of laws around the globe, um, personal information is defined as something that indirectly or directly or indirectly identifies a living person. So dead person, you know, the, the ego. Basically, personal information does not apply to dead people, per se. Mm -hmm. right? But in this context, there's a question of, like, well, an emotional state. Is an emotional state in and of itself personal information? Well, the answer is actually technically not. Like, okay, the concept of happy, sad, you know, like liking somebody, right? These things are emotional states. They don't necessarily become potentially personal information unless they're attached to a particular person, right? So that's the first thing, right? So clearly there is uh, Star-Lord's feelings towards Gamora um, as extracted by Mantis would be forms of personal, would be a form of personal information, right? And that would, if she was going to be 
abiding by existing principles, she would actually have to perhaps inform Star-Lord that she had this ability, and if she was going to collect this information through touching, that she'd actually get consent. Now, I'm trying to remember, I was trying to think about this as driving over. Did he? Did she actually ask him to touch him, or did she just reach out and touch him? I think she asked. Okay, so... Yeah. Uh, Grant, I would like to see it again, mm -hmm. um, but, but there was a discussion before where she described the power mm -hmm. of what she could do, because mm -hmm. um, she... Drax definitely asks her. To yes, 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 yes. Yeah. We, we never, we did. I want to see the outtakes of that one when we actually have that particular. Video. Such a fun cast. <laughs> so, so let's assume that he did actually ask her, right? That she actually asked and did it. Now, then the question is like, does does Star Lord really truly understand the nature of the power? Because one of the obligations, if she's gotten consent, you're also supposed to provide notice, right? And does does she? Does he? And that notice has to be sufficient to allow the person who's consenting to the collection to understand what's going on. Now, if I'm describing the, if, I think if I recall the dialogue with something that I can describe and I can understand how people feel. Well, I think she probably actually did provide sufficient understanding of the disclosure notice to uh, the Star Lord in that context. Yeah, I I agree with that. Because it was almost, well, they didn't say, like, prove it. Yeah. It was kind of, prove it. Yeah. And so they kind of asked for it to happen. That's true. Which is, it's like, yeah, be careful what you ask for with that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or, if it, again, we need to look back at the dialogue just to really dig in and know for sure. But if she said, like, let me prove it to you. Yeah. Then that that would change it the other direction. It might change it the other direction, but it's like yeah. So clearly, the concepts of notice and understanding of personal information uh, and when it's being collected are things that are, form the basis of privacy law around the globe, right? Now, one of the other questions that you have to consider is that, um, of course, in this particular instance, we're talking about explicit consent. Mm -hmm. right? She she did actually have consent from Star Lord in this context. Now. Would it be one of the there, the differences in law in this particular issue? But sometimes there's a distinction between information which is personal information versus what is considered sensitive categories of personal information. Now, sensitive personal information, I'm going to go ahead and refer to new um, a new European law that's going to come into effect in 2018. Um, but to find sensitive personal information is information personal information that reveals racial, ethnic, uh, information about racial or ethnic origin, political opinions, religious or philosophical beliefs, trade union membership, data concerning health or sex life or, and sex orientation, genetic data and or biometric data. Now, it seems like a pretty broad category. Now, for people, for a U.S. audience, um, you have to think about like, wow, sensitive personal information, how can something like political opinions or trade union membership or philosophical beliefs, why would those be considered sensitive information? Right? Well, looking at what happened in Europe in ooh, the late 1930s, early 1940s, you could see why they have this. That's exactly, and that, that's exactly the prism and the lens that you had to uh -huh. look at European privacy law from, uh, because they're very protective of um, 
person's about people's personal information in that context specifically because of the history that has come, right? Um, so in this particular instance, would a um, would an emotional state, would like liking somebody, qualify as sensitive personal information? Well, is it something considering their health, their sex life, or their orientation? A mental health professional pro would argue yes. Well, yeah, that's a possibly, or you know, just like having a feeling of love or something. It's an emotional state, but it's not necessarily a sex life per se. Although she she did explain, Nancy's does say during the um, uh, during the film that it is a a sexual love oh. that is actually felt. So maybe she actually created, maybe she actually solved the problem herself, solved the dilemma herself by explaining that yeah, it's a sexual feeling. So therefore, kind of put it into the sex life. Um, category at the end of the day. It's, it is fascinating because this is a nice European law mm -hmm. applying it to Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Quill's reaction to Mantis saying, you know, feelings of love. Yeah. And his reaction of like, yes, a general feeling of love for everyone. Yes. <laughs> and trying to cover it up uh -huh. as opposed to realizing, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> This this probably was a mistake on my part. Yeah. And man, no, sexual love for her. <laughs> it's like ooh, walk that one off. <laughs> so, so let's just so it seems like in reality, if you think about it, other than the comic effect aspect of it, huh? it, it seems to Mantis in explaining what the power was in talking through in essentially getting consent or mm -hmm. getting to actually touch Star-Lord to demonstrate it in the first instance, you know, seems like she actually followed the principles, you know, of, of the general principles. Now, you know, you can get into the details of, like, whatever, but, you know, one, it is a movie. Yeah. And, and it is for comic effect. It wouldn't have been funny if she said, oh, I'm sorry, here, let me have you sign this document. To do this. It, just, it just wouldn't have been interesting and fun at the end of the day. No, that would well. It might be entertaining for a second if it's like I do have a contract here. Could you or you know your your waiver that I need you to sign? Yeah. That would that might be entertaining for a nanosecond. Yes, yes. The, the, the privacy lawyers in the audience would laugh. Yeah, we're a really really narrow group. Yes, that's true. I don't think they're going to cater to a subset of lawyers who do privacy law, but it would be entertaining. It would be a nice shout out. Now let's let's, let's talk about like uh, now. Moving away from privacy law per uh -huh. se, like you have to think about the concept of like whether whether Mantis could be uh, liable for negligent infliction of emotional distress. The tort, basically, tort law for those who don't understand it, is basically the concept that if one does harm to somebody, one has a duty of care, and that duty of care is breached and someone is harmed, um, that actually. Can, that can be constitute negligence and, and uh, negligence, and that negligence can be compensated. That's the basis of basically of personal injury law and many different other forms. And negligent infliction of emotional distress is a form of personal injury, what they call tort. So, you know, if you think about this from Mantis's perspective, could she be liable for this? Well, under California law. Looking at the jury instructions to, for defining negligent infliction of emotional distress, um, says that the person claims that the, the injured party claims that the um, actions or the conduct of the of the uh, defendant suffer 
cause cause that person to suffer serious emotional distress. And in order to establish the claim, you have to establish that the defendant was negligent, that some serious that the um, person claiming the harm suffered serious emotional emotional distress, and that it was that her actions. The defend the plaintiff the defendant's actions were a substantial factor in causing it. So basically, you have to have a few different things. You have to have a negligent action. You have to have serious emotional distress, and there has to be a connection between the two, right? So let's talk about that briefly. Um, Mantis, in this particular instance, as we previously discussed, actually technically had consent, right? So you can't be negligent if you are. If you if you actually have consent to do something, the other party injured actually has done that. Well, let's assume that she didn't. That they, you know we've remembered the dialogue incorrectly, perhaps, and that she wasn't negligent. That she didn't actually get consent. But was she actually negligent in touching him, not informing him in the first instance or otherwise? Well, maybe, maybe not. No, we maybe and the fact that she's an alien who lives alone. With a giant planet, doesn't excuse or doesn't create her her ignorance of having a duty doesn't excuse her, so she could still be responsible for her actions, even if she is not technically aware of them. Um, then you get to this issue of serious emotional distress. Did this really cause serious emotional distress to the Star Lord at the end of the day? Right? They, they have revealed that you like like somebody. You know, there are a couple ways to look at this. One is it was, it was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Two, we don't see him like throwing up in horror, you know, like the like physical manifestations of it. Three, we do see him talking about you know the Cheers phenomenon mm -hmm. of, of lead characters not acknowledging feelings for each other. So, on one level, it was probably helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, to get it out in the open. Uh, so I do think that that is something that's interesting. Like, was there actual damages? Well, the well the the, the jury instruction for uh, for this particular tort under California law defines that emotional distress includes suffering, anguish, fright, horror, nervousness, grief, anxiety, worry, shock, humiliation, and shame. Serious emotional distress exists if an ordinary, reasonable person would be unable to cope with it. Now, I I think actually I'm not certain if I am I allowed to actually describe spoil do do spoilers at this point. It's I, I, been out for another three or four weeks. Right? I think if you haven't seen it, turn it off. But you should. Okay. So so basically, you think about it. Given given how this story arc actually progresses through the film, at the end of the movie, Gamora and Star Lord are hanging out. They're talking to each other, and they talk about the thing between them. So clearly. If there was emotional distress caused, not clear that it was actually serious. It seems as if he actually kind of that that, that icebreaker actually allowed him to actually express his feelings to him. So it's hard to suggest that if Star Lord wanted to bring an action against Mantis, he'd have a difficult time describing that he was unable to cope with it. Then getting into the psychology of Star Lord is interesting because here's a guy who looks like he was a womanizer. Mm -hmm. Probably because of his mother dying in front of him, which meant that he had trouble forming relationships with women because of the trauma of seeing his mom die and then immediately get kidnapped mm -hmm. by space aliens. Mm -hmm. That's a rough five minutes. 
Yeah, it might be, yes. He might have a little bit of PTSD off of that. Just, you know, he's, he's going to have some, some issues with that. So maybe because he had problems uh, forming relationships mm -hmm. because of his mom's death, mm -hmm. which meant he was probably seeking the company of women while at the same time being unable to form a bond with anyone, probably helpful in him actually being able to form an emotional bond with Gamora. Mm -hmm who does go out of her way to save him mm -hmm. uh, at the end yeah and was willing to get off the ship you know to risk her own life to go after him mm -hmm. which rocket then does his thing with i'm not losing two friends today yes so uh yeah i don't think there's a lot of harm there i mean mm -hmm. there's a little embarrassment but big picture it told the story. No, absolutely. It tells the story and advances the story, and clearly he was not, you know, clearly he was not damaged by it at the end of the day. No. So. Now, now, Rocket, do shooting Gamora, that's an interesting legal question. Oh. Uh, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. We might have to actually save that one for, for another, another day. Time. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting. It's a weird defense of others when you're trying to keep someone from getting killed. So. Yes. <laughs> huh. More on that later. <laughs> More on that later. So, to, like, to wrap up, we are here at Elusive. Yep. We're both wearing Elusive Comics t-shirts to show pride in, in the home team, because this is our place. It is our place. Yeah. Like, when we went to Comic-Con, we weren't aware that we both shop at the same comic book store. Absolutely true. And, and for those who, who live in um, Silicon Valley or, or close to it, Highly recommend coming out here to Elusive. Absolutely. You have to come out here to meet Anna. She has a, a particular touch with uh -huh. the store, which is unique amongst the retailers in this area. And she just basically, she is out there everywhere, in whether it be in the gaming, in the, in the games market, whether it be in the comic store, in the comic market. She has two stores, Isle of Games, which uh -huh. is actually also in Santa Clara, and also Elusive here. Our games focuses just on strategy and board games, and Elusive actually has board games as well, but has manga, has comic books, has a huge collection of pops, massive collection of graphic novels as well. And, you know, the thing about coming to Elusive is that she makes everybody feel comfortable, uh -huh. and everybody just feels welcome. And that's actually what we need today. We need we need a nice place where people can hang out, feel part of a community, and feel welcome. And she's done that exceptionally well. She sure has. So thank you, Anna, for everything. Exactly. And let's give a shout out to uh, Stephen Perry. Yes, and Stephen Perry, who worked at the store here forever. Um, they're like awesome guys, so really appreciate their their help every week. Yeah, I always enjoy coming in and chatting with them on like what they think of things, and very knowledgeable. Like when we were preparing for the the X Men mock hearing, mm -hmm. you know, I I wanted to pick up God Loves Man Kills. Yes, because we were using themes from there. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, you know we we made uh, uh, Striker the fictional president, mm -hmm. and again art imitating life. But I wrote this prior to to President Trump doing his thing. The fictional president issued executive orders, and I used FDRs as the model. For, mm -hmm. for the internment of, of Japanese as the model for what was happening to the mutants. Yes. And they ordered it. I like, had it in a week. 
And mm-hmm. so if you, if you want something that they don't have, and they do have a great collection, they can get it quickly. Yeah, it's terrific. So support your local retailers, support wherever you are. And but definitely, if you're in the if you're in the area of Santa Clara or the Silicon Valley, you should definitely come to Elusive Comics. Indeed. Well, Jack, thank you for uh, being able to share your insight and love of comics. Uh, I do want to acknowledge your son Timothy's here, who's shot pictures and been wearing a Doctor Strange T-shirt, hanging out. So looks like you're raising him right. So. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Josh. Always a pleasure. Excellent. And America, stay geeky. Stay geeky, America.